The Secret Life of Walter Mitty by James Thurber. We're going through. The commander's voice was like thin ice breaking. He wore his full-dress uniform with the heavily braided white cap pulled down rakishly over one cold gray eye. We can't make it, sir. It's spoiling for a hurricane, if you ask me. I'm not asking you, Lieutenant Berg, said the commander. Throw on the power lights. Rev her up to 8,500. We're going through. The pounding of the cylinders increased. To pocket a pocket a pocket a pocket a pocket a. The commander stared at the ice forming on the pilot window. He walked over and twisted a row of complicated dials. Switch on number eight auxiliary, he shouted. Switch on number eight auxiliary, repeated Lieutenant Berg. Full strength in number three turret, shouted the commander. Full strength in number three turret. The crew, bending to their various tasks in the huge, hurtling, eight-engined Navy hydroplane, looked at each other and grinned. The old man'll get us through, they said to one another. The old man ain't afraid of hell. Not so fast. You're driving too fast, said Mrs. Mitty. Why are you driving so fast? Hmm, said Walter Mitty. He looked at his wife in the seat beside him with shocked astonishment. She seemed grossly unfamiliar, like a strange woman who had yelled at him in a crowd. You were up to 55, she said. You know I don't like to go more than 40. You were up to 55. Walter Mitty drove on toward Waterbury in silence. The roaring of the SN-202 through the worst storm in 20 years of Navy flying faded in the remote, intimate airways of his mind. You're tensed up again, said Mrs. Mitty. It's one of your days. I wish you'd let Dr. Renshaw look you over. Walter Mitty stopped the car in front of the building where his wife went to have her hair done. Remember to get those overshoes while I'm having my hair done, she said. I don't need overshoes, said Mitty. She put her mirror back into her bag. We've been all through that, she said, getting out of the car. You're not a young man any longer. He raced the engine a little. Why don't you wear your gloves? Have you lost your gloves? Walter Mitty reached in a pocket and brought out the gloves. He put them on, but after she had turned and gone into the building and he had driven on to a red light, he took them off again. Pick it up, brother, snapped a cop as the light changed and Mitty hastily pulled on his gloves and lurched ahead. He drove around the streets aimlessly for a time. Then he drove past the hospital on his way to the parking lot. It's the millionaire banker Wellington McMillan, said the pretty nurse. Yes, said Walter Mitty, removing his gloves slowly. Who has the case? Dr. Renshaw and Dr. Benbow. But they are two specialists here, too. Dr. Remington from New York and Mr. Pritchard Mitford from London. He flew over. A door opened down the long, cool corridor, and Dr. Renshaw came out. He looked distraught and haggard. Hello, Mitty, he said. We're having the devil's own time with Macmillan, the millionaire banker and close personal friend of Roosevelt. Obstreosis of the ductal tract tertiary. Wish you'd take a look at him. Glad to, said Mitty. In the operating room, there were whispered introductions. Dr. Remington, Dr. Mitty. Mr. Pritchard Mitford, Dr. Mitty.
I've read your book on streptothrichosis, said Pritchard Mitford, shaking hands. A brilliant performance, sir. Thank you, said Walter Mitty. Didn't know you were in the States, Mitty, grumbled Remington. Coles to Newcastle, bringing Mitford and me up here for a tertiary. You are very kind, said Mitty. A huge, a complicated machine connected to the operating table with many tubes and wires began at this moment to go pocketa, pocketa, pocketa. The new anesthetizer is giving way, shouted an intern. There is no one in the East who knows how to fix it. Quiet man, said Mitty in a low, cool voice. He sprang to the machine, which was now going pocketa, pocketa, queep, pocketa, queep. He began fingering delicately a row of glistening dials. Give me a fountain pen, he snapped. Someone handed him a fountain pen. He pulled a faulty piston out of the machine and inserted the pen in its place. What that will hold for ten minutes, he said. Get on with the operation. A nurse hurried over and whispered to Renshaw, and Mitty saw the man turn pale. Coriopsis has set in, said Renshaw nervously. If you would take over, Mitty. Mitty looked at him and at the craven figure of Benbow, who drank, and at the grave, uncertain faces of the two great specialists. If you wish, he said, and they slipped a white gown on him. He adjusted a mask and drew on thin gloves. Nurses handed him shining. Back it up, Mac. Look out for that Buick. Walter Mitty jammed on the brakes. Wrong lane, Max, said the parking lot attendant, looking at Mitty closely. Gee, yes, sputtered Mitty. He began cautiously to back out of the lane marked exit only. Leave her sit there, said the attendant. I'll put her away. Mitty got out of the car. Hey, better leave the key. Oh, said Mitty, handing the man the ignition key. The attendant vaulted into the car, backed it up with insolent skill, and put it where it belonged. They're so damn cocky, thought Walter Mitty, walking along Main Street. They think they know everything. Once he had tried to take his chains off outside New Milford, and he had got them wound around the axles. A man had had to come out in a wrecking car and unwind them, a young, a grinning garage man. Since then, Mrs. Mitty always made him drive to a garage to have the chains taken off. The next time, he thought, I'll wear my right arm in a sling. They won't grin at me then. I'll have my right arm in a sling, and they'll see I couldn't possibly take the chains off myself. He kicked at the slush on the sidewalk. Overshoes, he said to himself, and he began looking for a shoe store. When he came out into the street again with the overshoes and a box under his arm, Walter Mitty began to wonder what the other thing was his wife had told him to get. She had told him twice, before they had set out from the house for Waterbury. In a way, he hated these weekly trips to town. He was always getting something wrong. Kleenex, he thought. Squibs? Razor blades? No. Toothpaste? Toothbrush? Bicarbonate? Carborundum? Initiative? and referendum? He gave it up, but she would remember it. Where's the what's-it-name, she would ask. Don't tell me you forgot the what's-its-name. A newsboy went by shouting something about the Waterbury trial. Perhaps this will refresh your memory, the district attorney suddenly thrust a heavy automatic at the quiet figure on the witness stand. Have you ever seen this before? 
Walter Mitty took the gun and examined it expertly. This is my Webley Vickers 50.80, he said calmly. An excited buzz ran around the courtroom. The judge rapped for order. You are a crack shot with any sort of firearms, I believe, said the district attorney insinuatingly. Objection, shouted Mitty's attorneys. We have shown that the defendant could not have fired the shot. We have shown that he wore his right arm in a sling on the night of the 14th of July. Walter Mitty raised his hand briefly, and the bickering attorneys were stilled. With any known make of gun, he said evenly, I could have killed Gregory Fitzhurst at 300 feet with my left hand. Pandemonium broke loose in the courtroom. A woman's scream rose above the bedlam, and suddenly a lovely, dark-haired girl was in Walter Mitty's arms. The district attorney struck at her savagely. Without rising from his chair, Mitty let the man have it on the point of the chin. You miserable cur! Puppy Biscuit, said Walter Mitty. He stopped walking, and the buildings of Waterbury rose up out of the misty courtroom and surrounded him again. A woman who was passing laughed. He said Puppy Biscuit, she said to her companion. That man said Puppy Biscuit to himself. Walter Mitty hurried on. He went into an A&P, not the first one he came to, but a smaller one further up the street. I want some biscuit for small young dogs, he said to the clerk. Any special brand, sir? The greatest pistol shot in the world, thought a moment. It says puppies bark for it on the box, said Walter Mitty. His wife would be through at the hairdresser's in 15 minutes. Mitty saw in looking at his watch, unless they had trouble drying it. Sometimes they had trouble drying it. She didn't like to get to the hotel first. She would want him to be there waiting for her as usual. He found a big leather chair in the lobby facing a window, and he put the overshoes and the puppy biscuit on the floor beside it. He picked up an old copy of Liberty and sank down into the chair. Can Germany conquer the world through the air? Walter Mitty looked at the pictures of bombing planes and of ruined streets. The cannonading has got the wind up in young Raleigh, sir, said the sergeant. Captain Mitty looked up at him through tousled hair. Get him to bed, he said wearily. With the others, I'll fly alone. But you can't, sir, said the sergeant anxiously. It takes two men to handle that bomber, and the Archies are pounding hell out of the air. Von Rickman's circus is between here and Solier. Somebody's got to get that ammunition dump, said Mitty. I'm going over. Spot of brandy? He poured a drink for the sergeant and one for himself. War thundered and whined around the dugout and battered at the door. There was a rending of wood and splinters flew through the room. A bit of a near thing, said Captain Mitty carelessly. The box barrage is closing in, said the sergeant. We only live once, sergeant, said Mitty with his faint fleeting smile. Or do we? He poured another brandy and tossed it off. I never see a man could hold his brandy like you, sir, said the sergeant. "'Begging your pardon, sir,' Captain Mitty stood up and strapped on his huge Webley Vickers automatic. "'It's forty kilometers through hell, sir,' said the sergeant. Mitty finished one last brandy. "'After all,' he said, "'what isn't?' The pounding of the cannon increased. There was a rat-tat-tatting of machine guns, 
and from somewhere there came the menacing pocketa 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 of the new flamethrowers. Walter Mitty walked to the door of the dugout, humming, A praise du ma blonde, then turned and waved to the sergeant. Cheerio, he said. Something struck his shoulder. I've been looking all over this hotel for you, said Mrs. Mitty. Why do you have to hide in this old chair? How did you expect me to find you? Things close in, said Walter Mitty vaguely. What? Mrs. Mitty said. Did you get the what's-it-name? The puppy biscuit? What's in that box? Overshoes, said Mitty. Couldn't you have put them on in the store? I was thinking, said Walter Mitty. Does it ever occur to you that I'm sometimes thinking? She looked at him. I'm going to take your temperature when I get you home, she said. They went out through the revolving doors that made a faintly derisive whistling sound when you pushed them. It was two blocks to the parking lot. At the drugstore on the corner, she said, Wait here for me. I forgot something. I won't be a minute. She was more than a minute. Walter Mitty lighted a cigarette. He began to rain, rain with sleet in it. He stood up against the wall of the drugstore smoking. He put his shoulders back and his heels together. To hell with the handkerchief, said Walter Mitty scornfully. He took one last drag on his cigarette and snapped it away. Then, with that faint, fleeting smile playing about his lips, he faced the firing squad. Erect and motionless, proud and disdainful, Walter Mitty the undefeated, inscrutable to the last.